now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spataro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. Hello, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I'm here, as always, with Scott Gardner. Well, not always, but usually. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> it's going good. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing great. Today, we have a faux Bill Robinson. <laughs> and that would be so, it's the other, Florida, <laughs> the other Florida-based anime freak. Gotcha. <laughs> yes. How you doing, Gene? I'm doing pretty good. How Thank quickly you you've adjusted <laughs> to being Florida-based, that it's just that it identifies you now. I didn't say I was from Florida. I'm just Florida-based. Florida <laughs> nobody's nobody's from Florida. No, <laughs> well, not not even Florida man. Florida man is an amalgam. Is, is Florida man a transplant? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Probably <laughs> from Jersey. I would not be surprised. <laughs> There are some pineys in Jersey I can picture doing exactly what Florida man does. So, we are still within the quarantine level of the pandemic and hoping by the time this airs, maybe we won't be anymore. But uh, how, you've, you've managed to do some comic shopping, Scott. You've been a comic shopping oh, fool. I have been a comic shopping maniac. Um, oh, you put me on the spot, though, because I don't have anything sitting here with me at the moment that I bought recently to, to brag about or to, to stack to go through. But, yeah, I, I have been. And I expect to be here again in the future, too, because uh, I, I wish I could remember who it was. But uh, I, I thought that it was uh, Christopher Warden, but he says it wasn't him. But somebody... I can't remember. It, it was either in our Facebook group or maybe they private messaged me or something. But somebody a while ago tipped me off to the fact that uh, mycomicshop.com um, has a selling option. So the other day I was just you know playing around on the Internet and, and I was like, hey, so, you know, I remember somebody mentioning this. Let me go in and look at it. So I went in and I read the whole thing on there and I was like, yeah, this sounds like it might be all right. So I went in and started putting stuff in, and the next thing I know, I'd sent them seventy dollars worth, uh, you know, in shipping costs worth of uh, books, you know, mostly like paperback books and stuff. Because I found out they bought paperback books. I'm like, who buys paperback books anymore? You know. Now, my and, comic shop itself buys a few, or they're taking them on consignment. They they do both, but I didn't do any consignment. I just sold straight to them. So what you do is you you make a list of what you have available. Um, they have a thing where you can go in and see if they're buying, you know, like what they're buying. And you can enter your inventory in there and everything, and that's what I did. And then I, I had a list of things that they were looking for, so I submitted the list, and then they send back and they let you know if they want it, how many they want, that sort of thing. 
And How do they uh, work it on condition. Uh, I'm going to find that out. Pay more so on a higher end. It, it, you know, yeah, exactly. Book. So the, the, they have like a range in there. And then what I liked was that there was a, a thing where, you know, they have like a think of it like almost like a survey. It's like, you know, good, better, best type of thing. And then one of the bars on the grading scale will be a green bar. And if you're just like, I don't know what the condition is, or in my case, I was like, oh, I'll be goddamned if I'm going to go through every one of these and grade them. I just automatically put everything as the green. So they're going to turn around and grade it anyway. So I figured, why waste my time? You know? So what, what so does what green say that you're leaving it to them to grade? Is that what that point is? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it says something on their site like, you know, if you don't know the grade or, you know, if you're not a grader or whatever, then just check the green. So I did that with everything. I'm like, they're they're going to grade it anyway. So I was like, you know, I, I don't care. I just want to get rid of this stuff. So that was that was my thing is that basically I sent them anything that I just really I just want to get rid of. I mean, yes, I'd like to make you know, some money on it, but ultimately my goal is to just get it the hell out of my house, you know? <laughs> and so that's what I did. And, and I cleared out four huge boxes of, again, mostly paperback books, although there were some comics in there too. And now they're, they're in transit to them as of this recording. And we'll see, because their, their suggestion was, you know, send us a batch, see how you like us. You know, they, they had all these testimonials and guarantees and all this stuff that, you know, you will be satisfied and all this. And so I'm like, yeah, whatever. So but it, in my opinion, you know, so long as they will give me enough credit, because that's the other thing is you can either sell them to them for cash or you can do it um, for store credit. And this store credit is significantly higher um, than the cash amount that they would pay. And since I, as you say, have been a comics buying maniac lately, I'm like, well, store credit's fine with me. So I'm looking at potentially, you know, several hundred dollars worth of credit, depending on, you know, how things grade out and everything. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this process. I think it'll be pretty cool. And if, if I like it, then I, I can see myself, you know, sending in that much more. But what I really like best about it was finding out that they were actually buying paperback books because ever since we you know started packing up to move to this new house i've been fretting about the tons and tons and tons of paperback books that i have um that are now effectively useless because nobody reads paperbacks now especially you know in my case it was a lot of star trek and star wars novels Star Wars novels are worthless now because nobody wants them because, you know, Disney scrapped the EU. And then Star Trek, I'm not sure what's up with Star Trek, but apparently those are worthless now, too, because nobody's buying them. So I had them, and but most of those books I now have digitally, and I prefer reading digitally. So I'm like, why, you know, why should I just hoard, you know, tons of books? But at the same rate, you know, the the whatever in me is like I, I can't just throw things away i can't just give things away that i've paid good money for and in these cases i mean these were you know the star trek or the star wars books was a complete collection of the entire eu before disney did away with it and then the star trek one was not complete but it was huge i mean i had just about every tos book just about every tng book i, I a good smattering of the other you know um Voyager and Deep Space Nine and all those. And I think I have all the Enterprise books. So, I mean, it was a big collection. 
And I, it just killed me to think of them as worthless, you know, just taking up space. And now, you know, thanks to these guys, you know, a lot of them are gone now. So, um, so we'll see how it shakes out. But uh, I thought it was pretty cool. And again, whoever it was that uh, that threw that idea out there, I really appreciate it. You know, if you're listening, let me know it was you because I I cannot remember who tipped me off about it. And uh, but I'm glad I looked into it, or at least in theory, I'm glad. I'm <laughs> yeah. We'll wait and see what their what their final verdict is on everything, but. I think it should shake out well because, I mean, if, if something was just ratty and falling apart, then, you know, of course, I didn't bother to send it to them. I, I pride myself on, you know, taking good care of my books and my comics and everything. So, you know, I tried to send them stuff that was in at least good condition. Anything less than good, I was just like, nah, you know, I'd, I'd be too embarrassed to, you know, to send this to somebody type of thing. So, although I have noticed on their site that, you know, they, they do – you know, take, you know, incomplete or, you know, they do sell anyway, incomplete books and coverless and all that. I just don't know yet how you submit that stuff to them because I didn't see that as an option. But mm. you know, I've got all that kind of stuff, too. But anyway, yeah. But, man, I yeah, I've been I've been buying collections and single books and all kinds of I, I've just been going nuts lately yeah, with some really. Hmm? And I've been the benefactor or the, the beneficiary of some of that. uh <laughs> is that, that zeal that you've been going out with because i haven't been able to go to the comic stores here in long island they've been you know just pretty much closed uh but uh i, I managed to get you to to help me live vicariously by picking up books off my want list and mailing them <laughs> to me and for what it's worth i received a nice big bundle of them today in the mail uh which got me very excited as i started paging through some of it and uh, I don't think there's a book in the lot that was more than two dollars. Uh, so right. That's you know that just makes me more excited uh, <laughs> to, to know that you know we got what we got we got on a you know on a, on a at a good buy. I mean books some of the books you know like what was there was Captain Marvel the uh, you know the original series the original Marvel series not not the Force itself <laughs> uh, but issues number nine and eleven so we're talking books that were you know in the late sixties or early seventies. Yep. They were they were two dollars each, and they're not. Nice. Yep. You know they're not in whip to shit condition. They're not you know mint, but they're not beat to hell either. I was so impressed with what they had. That was uh, I got those at the uh, Coliseum of Comics by the Mall of Millennia, um, which I I like that store for its selection. I've never been terribly impressed with that store as far as its pricing because it is the one that's closest. Well, arguably, it's the one that's closest to Disney because it's on the the main through thoroughfare. You know, it's right on I four, so it's I would expect it's probably their their biggest and most popular store and all that. So their prices reflect that they're 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 touristy. Um, but I went there, you know, one day I was just, you know, I was in the area and I was like, I am so itching to go to a comic shop. And I thought, you know, I, I intended to go there with my want list and dig through, you know, the regular back issue bins. And as I'm doing that, I suddenly spied on the floor, these, these three, it was three or four long boxes that were all, it said right on them. It said, uh, late silver to bronze age, $2. And I'm like, Really? So, you know, I plunked my ass down on the floor, started digging through these boxes, and I was impressed by, I mean, they had some really good, I mean, I could have gone broke in there, and I, I did spend a fortune in there. I went uh, three, I think I did three different trips there, and I, I ultimately got pretty much everything I wanted, but I, I still could have bought more. They had um, huge, 
huge runs of uh, Marvel Western stuff, which I know nothing about. I don't really have much of it in my own collection or, or anything, but just the fact that they were just huge runs of this stuff in, as you say, you know, pretty good condition and everything. Um, just older stuff you just never see cheap. I I was so tempted to buy them, but I already had spent you know way, way overspent at that place to begin with. And then uh, another comic shop that's closer to where I actually live now, um, I stopped by there just to see if they were open really, and went in and was digging around. Didn't really find much, and I was just on my way out. And uh, there was a lady working the counter I had never seen there before. And she, she just happened to ask, she goes, were you looking for anything in particular? And I was just, oh, I was just looking to see if you guys had anything new, you know, that I hadn't already seen. And she said, well, did you check the boxes in the back? I'm like, uh, mm-hmm. what box in the back? <laughs> I go back there and it was probably 20 or so long boxes of dollar books. And she said something to the effect of like the owner had just bought them, hadn't even sorted them yet. So I'm like, I'm just like in the back and I'm, I'm just yanking stuff, you know? And, uh, yeah, ton of great stuff. And yeah, it was pretty obvious that somebody had just bought this collection and, and had not gone through it yet. Cause I got some really nice mm. books for a buck out of there. But, uh, the one I was probably strangely enough, the book I was probably happiest to get out of there was a book I didn't even know existed. It's um, Valkyrie. It was a one shot from 1997. Um, I'm trying to remember who. I, th- I think it was uh, Jam uh, was the writer. I think, but I'm flipping through it and and I'm like, oh, I've never even seen this before. I didn't even know it existed. And then the very last page, there was a dedication um, to Mark Grunwald. And that that got me right where I live. I'm like, oh, so now I got to get this book. So I, I picked it up. I haven't read it yet, but uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll throw it in a in a future episode because it, it looks like fun. But yeah, just you know, some really good stuff in there too. So I've I've had some good luck lately with the with the shops. But I think what it is, I think in this area, I think people are just you know they're still skittish about going out and, and shopping and everything so you know that's played to my to my benefit with the comic shops because i had them you know i mean each time i went to these shops i was one of maybe like three or four people in those shops so you know the back issue stuff's just sitting there and you know and when they throw the new stuff out you know on under the floor i was lucky enough to just be amongst the first people to dig through it so I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> and so am I, even though I, it's only vicariously. But I got a box of comics so will, to show uh, for it, so I'm happy. <laughs> so will Dave Pascarella, because I picked him up some uh, some war books. <laughs> he loves but, uh, the war books. Yeah, yeah, he does. Superman and the war. That's his thing. <laughs> well, somebody was uh, was chiding us about – there was a book he, he – posted up a picture of because he's been posting a lot of pictures of uh, superman books and there was a po- one he posted up and i commented on it saying you know i've had this book for you know decades and and never read it and uh, he said oh same thing so i messaged him and uh, we were t- you know t- talking offline and i just told him i said you know let's get together and do an episode and we'll cover that book and he's like yeah so we're gonna do that at some point so cool we'll see we'll see what comes of it <laughs> Well, Dave's usually pretty good on being available, so I would say that could work out. 
So today, now, Gene, you had uh, you had picked out this book quite some time ago. Is there? Did you just pick it out saying next time I'm on the show I just want to have a book ready, or was there a specific reason why you wanted to pick this book? A little bit of both. Uh, I'm I'm a planner, (laughs) as anyone who has gone gone to Walt Disney World with me can tell you. (laughs) I am a planner. Uh, so I, I know that there are times when there are certain people on the show that have to be on assignment and you may be looking for guest hosts. So it's, it's just easier if I have something ready to go. So I figured I'll take this book, which I really, really like for reasons I will get into when we cover it and I'll just wrap a synopsis. And that way, next time Paul calls, bang, there it is. And, uh, hey, we know it worked. I will tell you that Scott and I, and to a lesser extent, Bill, but the three of us have been trying to have that attitude for, uh, well, how long am I on the show now? <laughs> from from day one. We, we've, we've set up chat rooms where we could share with each other, and the idea is I'm going to have a Marvel, a DC, and an indie picked so that whatever it's my turn to do the next time we record together, you already know which my book is going to be, and you'll have had a chance to read it. And we've, we've been trying to do this for years, and it never, ever works for us. Never it works. It just doesn't. <laughs> it's always by the seat of our pants, and we just can't, you know, we, we just can't do it. I don't know why. There's really no logical reason why we can't, but we can't. So stop yelling I, I, at us. When we the last time we really made a conscious effort to to really knuckle down and and be like okay this is we're gonna do it this way, I was I was so intent that it was gonna work, and then I was just thinking about this recently. I was like you know those books that I had lined up that I had picked that I sent to the guys and everything, it's gotta be what like a year ago that I read those <laughs> books. Now I, I totally remember don't remember anything books. that happened. Yeah. So yeah, it it. It was a great idea and concept. It just doesn't it doesn't work. <laughs> well, it, it works for those of us that don't have to do it every week. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I wrote this one synopsis up and it's been sitting there just in case. <laughs> yeah. If I was and, the occasional guest on the show, I think I could have that ready. Yeah. Right. Which makes it easy for the the short notice Hey, they can't make it tonight. <laughs> Can you come on? Okay, yes. <laughs> Which, I'm all to be set. fair, more often than not, that is the way I contact you. It's, it's, so, I, I usually right. don't give you a lot of advance notice. Just means I have to write up another synopsis after tonight, so that I'll have the next one ready. Yeah, well, I, you know, the synopsis for my book I did this afternoon. <laughs> So, once again, seat of my pants. <laughs> so, uh, we're doing Marvel DC Indie, and you've got the Marvel, so we might as well yes, jump I into do. it. All right. Tonight, we will be covering The Mighty Thor, issue number 355, which I am reading out of my Thor Visionaries, Walter Simonson, volume two, which I just happen to have signed. I'm holding up to the microphone so you can see that. And this has cover date of May 1985. Holy crap, this book is 35 years old. On sale date, February 12th, 1985. And thank you to Mike's Amazing World for that. Scripter, Walt Simonson. Guest artist, Sal Buscema. 
letterer John Workman, colorist Christy Scheel, editor Ralph Macchio, editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. And on the Walt Simonson cover, we have Thor wrestling with a giant of a man. Opening the book, we find the title The Icy Hearts, or My Dinners with Thor. And suddenly I'm flashing back to a Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon. The splash page shows Thor in the foreground, unconscious and wrapped in furs, with his head bandaged. Near him is a pit with a roaring fire, which is not melting the ice that the room is made of. In the background is a large, the large man from the cover, his upper half hidden in shadows, and he is holding Mjolnir in his right hand. The man playfully flips Thor's hammer into the air and then catches it. Seeing that Thor is waking up, he quickly places Mjolnir on the nightstand with a chunk. Thor awakes, partially delirious, remembering the avalanche that buried him at the end of last issue. Noticing the stranger, Thor demands to know who he is and if Thor has died and been transported to Valhalla. The stranger, now fully revealed as an old man, is carving something out of ice. He says it is not the Hall of Heroes, but his home that Thor is in. He informs Thor that Hela caused the avalanche and that if he wanted Thor dead, he could have just left him buried in the snow. That discussion is put on hold, though, as the host demands that Thor wrestle him for the right to eat supper. Thor is worried, since his host is easily twice his size, but knowing the rules of hospitality, Thor complies. It is a very short fight, resulting in Thor losing. His host carries the Thunder God back to bed and calls for food, which is brought by servants made of living ice. While Thor eats, his host goes back to carving. Thor relates how Odin has been lost, having fallen into a fiery crevasse along with Surtur. His host rebukes Thor for whining about his father's death, which upsets the Thunder God even more. Thor, Thor is told that his host and Odin were old friends, and that he knew Odin even before Thor was born. The host blows out the candle and bids Thor sleep, which he does almost instantly. We now cut to the streets of New York City, where the Warriors Three are taking in the sights. They enter Macy's, and Volstagg is fascinated by the nonstick cookware. He says that if they had this in his house, he might never have to leave home again to avoid washing the dishes. Not too far away, the Lady Sif is walking with Beta Ray Bill in his non-horse-faced form. She is worried about what is happening in Asgard, since they are stranded on Earth and haven't had any news. These two are so deep in conversation that they don't notice a trio of people clad in gold armor enter a jewelry store after the alarm is scrambled. Back in the icy wastes of Asgard, Thor is wake, wakes up to find his host carving once more. When Thor gets up, he is taken on a tour of the lands around the cave. During the lecture about the Arctic Circle of Life, Thor asks his host for his name. Even though he has had many names, he tells Thor that to call him Tiwaz. Editor's note. Tiwaz is the name of the Norse T rune, which looks like an arrow. One of its meanings is primal father. They then head back to the cave, and Thor sees Mjolnir sitting on the table for the first time. This causes Thor to wonder how Tiwaz carried it there, but he's told that it's easy for the unliving ice servants to do. As it is time for supper again, Thor and Tiwaz wrestle. Thor lasts a little longer this time, but still beaten easily. 
This time, however, Tiwaz eats with him, and they talk about why Thor stays on Earth. Thor then goes to bed and once again quickly falls asleep. Meanwhile, in the castle of Loki, two figures teleport in. They're Loki and Lorelei, who are plotting how Loki can take the throne now that Odin is gone. The easiest way, obviously, is if Thor backed his claim, and Lorelei will be an integral part in that plan. The next morning, Thor wakes up to see Tiwaz breathe life literally into one of his ice carvings. This causes Thor to jump to the conclusion that Tiwaz is actually Odin in disguise. Tiwaz takes Thor up to the balcony and explains that while he was once a sky god, and even called Allfather, he is not Odin. To prove his point, Tiwaz says that Odin, even in disguise, always only had one eye, while Tiwaz has two. He further explains that while he was once a sky god, he grew weary of the job and retired to the frozen north. Thor is still confused by the origins that he's heard of Odin, one from Odin's own mouth, and the other from his discarded eyeball. Tiwaz tells him to believe the words of his father over that of a disgruntled floating eye. Even so, it's time to eat again, so they must wrestle. This time, Thor is the one that wins, throwing Tiwaz over his head. To this, Tiwaz roars with laughter. This is the indication that Thor is now fully healed and ready to head back to Asgard. Thor doesn't want to leave, but since he feels that Odin owns loss and still feels very at home with Tiwaz. In response, his host quotes from, and now I'm always going to get this wrong, Eclastetes, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, which states, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heavens, the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Thor is still depressed, though, and one of Tiwaz's creations speaks up, surprising the Thunder God. She says that they only all live for a day, since they melt before the fire at night. They still enjoy living for their time, and she said that Odin surely enjoyed his life as well. As she melts away in Tiwaz's hand, she explains that their home, this is their home, but Thor belongs on Midgard. This convinces Thor that it is time to leave. But he asked Tiwaz to come with him. Tiwaz declines the offer, gives Thor supplies to get him back to Asgard. They say their goodbyes, and Tiwaz points Thor in the direction of some other wanderers in his territory. Thor sets off, and Tiwaz wishes, wishes him well. Thor walks overnight, and the next morning he meets up with Frigga and the Asgardian children that have been sent away by Odin before the great battle. Thor tries to tell Frigga of her husband's death, but she stops him since she already knows what he's going to say. They comfort each other over the loss, and then the whole group starts a journey back to Asgard. They are observed by a bald eagle, who heads back to Tiwaz. Tiwaz tells the bird that he is very proud of Thor, and happy they could ease his grief. Thor is truly a warrior, but should he expect any less from his great-grandson? Yes, Tiwaz is actually Buri the first of the Norse gods and grandfather of Odin. So he would be, would be the father of Bor? Yes. Is, yes. That, is that true to uh, Norse mythology? It is. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to cover this book, because this is one of the, one of the issues I had when I was a kid. 
And after I learned more about the Norse lore, I realized that this was the indication, even though I didn't realize it at the time, that Simonson gets it. <laughs> he knows the, the lore and he can really incorporate it well. So, yeah. Um, in fact, I, know, like, you, I think in response to that is unlike Stan, who just kind of made it up as he went along. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but in the, the Norse creation myth, Glory is actually encased in the ice of Niflheim. And he is slowly freed over time. And he eventually marries a giant's daughter, begets Bor, who marries a giant's daughter, who begets Odin and his two brothers. So if you think about it, Bori is the only true 100% god. Everybody else is mixed with giant blood. Which is why, if you... <laughs> If you think about it, uh, for, like, godly stature, each generation is then shorter because mm -hmm. they're less of a god. He is the only full-blooded Norse deity. But beyond the creation myth, he and Bor don't show up in any of the lore. So it makes sense, if he's going to still be alive, that he he, he got sick of what was what his job was said, fine, you take it. I'm gone. And heads back to the icy waste, which is what Niflheim was. That was the realm of the grinding ice. Right. Okay. And now I've bored you both to tears. No, not at all. It's no, not at all. No, I, find, I find this very interesting. But well, after, uh, after rereading this today, I, I was actually doing some reading up on on him, both mythologically, but then also within the, you know, the Marvel Universe, because uh, I, I do. I, I find it really interesting. It had been a long time since I read this particular issue. I uh, as soon as I saw the cover, because I didn't recognize the number three fifty five. So when I looked mm -hmm. it up and, and saw the cover, I'm like, oh, this is the one where he meets his grandfather. So I kind of remembered it, but I misremembered it, too, because I <laughs> thought this was Boar. I didn't realize it was Boar's father. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, you just have to at the end when he says my great grandson, that's that's when you track back as, oh, crap. Yeah, he's, this is the first guy. So now, in uh, in relation to Thor's life, mm -hmm. when did Odin lose his eye in Norse in Norse mythology, not in Marvel comics? He lost his eye fairly early on, um, because the 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 whole reason he gave up his eye was he needed to sacrifice something to gain wisdom from the well of Mimir. And if you think of it this way, the, the well is the font of all knowledge. And if you throw your eye into that well, you can now see the, all the knowledge in the well. So that was pretty early on. Uh, so I would say that it was prob it, it doesn't definitively say, where Thor is in his life, but it was either before Thor was born or when Thor was still very young. Okay, but in the comics, 
he doesn't lose his eye until well into the Thor run. Yeah, in uh, probably like the Roy Thomas era, I would say. And yet, (laughs) (laughs) the way he's talking here, it's as if it's adopted the continuity from the mythology and not from the comics, because they talk about Odin, you know, not having an eye, like, forever. Yeah, that was... That was Simonson trying to match things up more. Uh, And the the whole thing between what Odin told him and what the eye told him, that goes back to when Roy Thomas was doing the Ring of Nebelung in the comics. Which is issue 300. Right. uh, Yeah, it was a little before that. It concluded in 300, didn't it? it? Yeah, because it concluded when Thor went back, and that's when he discovered that all of the Asgardians' souls had gone to power the Destroyer to fight the Celestials. So that was the whole, that was the whole Eternals saga. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was only, if you think about it, it was only five years before this, give or take. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing that kind of throws me off a little bit because I, I am still, or I, for better or for worse, I, I'm still kind of a slave to continuity. And mm. when they, you know, when they conflict with the existing continuity, it bothers me. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, but... I, I understand that the mythology continuity should trump the comic book continuity. But, you know, it's like you made your bed, now you have to sleep in it. And then, mm-hmm. but then, then you, but then you go into, you know, what you, the point you made that, you know, Simonson did his research, he knows the mythology, uh, and he's trying to be true to it. Whereas, you know, like I said, Stan was going by the seat of his pants, uh, and just throwing out whatever felt convenient for him, uh, and, and just creating his own mythology and his own myths wherever they were convenient. Uh, so it's it's hard for somebody who did the research to then be locked in to the haphazard way of presenting it. Yeah, yeah, I I, I like the idea that okay, there was some of this stuff that happened, but <laughs> you had this thing that got plucked out of someone's eye and thrown away. You know, the the eye is just disgruntled. He's going to tell you whatever he wants to tell you just to try and hurt you. So maybe you don't listen to him. Uh, so that, that could be used as kind of a, okay, maybe not everything we've heard so far is quite true. But yeah, I yeah. was just thinking that too. That I think that's one of the things because I'm with Paul. I you know I tend to be the continuity guy, and I get really really annoyed when you know other writers don't you know they're. I don't want to say slaves to continuity, but when they don't respect the continuity and they, they don't try to stick to it. However, I think with the Asgardian aspects of this title, I think it kind of lends itself to being a bit nebulous because that's the way myth is. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when I was reading up on this guy today on, uh, on Thor's uh, great grandfather, you know, his origins, uh, you know, the character's origins in myth are in great dispute. You know, there's several different versions of his uh, of his origin story, essentially. And I kind of like that. I, you know, it, it's it's 
you know, when it comes to the mythological sense, you know, that's why it would be myth, because it goes back into antiquity and, you know, stories that were handed down verbally and that sort of thing. So, you know, the thing with with Odin's eye, because that ties more into mythology than it does into Marvel Comics continuity, I I think you can kind of forgive it a little bit easier or as opposed to, you know, well, you know, five years ago, Superman said this and now he's saying completely the opposite in this new issue that came. You know, that's different. That's that's yeah. somebody being ignorant. As opposed to somebody making a conscious decision that, OK, I'm going to play a little fast and loose with this because I'm trying to, you know, tweak continuity or, you know, you know, in Simonson's case, as Paul said, you know, make it a little closer to, um, you know, the actual mythology. That's that's one of the things I really liked about this run because I you know I uh, discovered Thor uh, through the Simonson run um, when Chris Honeywell was was downsizing his collection back when we were kids he sold me his whole Simonson Thor run and you know I sat down and started reading it and just absolutely fell in love with it but prior to that I mean I I had great disdain for Thor as a character <laughs> I thought he was just a big sissy you know. And, uh, but then I fell in love with him because of this. So now it's actually, it's hard for me to go back and read the earliest issues of Thor, you know, especially the stand yeah. stuff, because, uh, you know, especially, you know, the first couple of years of that were just, <laughs> I mean, it was so seat of the pants, nothing made any sense. You know, Loki wasn't Thor's brother when he first came along, you know, just all this wackiness. And it, and it took a long time before, you could see that anybody was actually picking up a book to research mythology. You know, they were just kind of winging it. And uh, yeah, I I like this better. That's, that's one of the things I liked about Simonson's run is that I felt he was respectful of everything that came prior, but he was also trying to clean it up a bit. And, and Mm -hmm. for the most part, I think he did a really good job, you know, with, with hopefully not, you know, stepping on anybody's toes or what, but I, I liked you know, it got me interested in mythology. You know, uh, I, I credit both this and uh, and Burn or not Burn um, Perez's Wonder Woman with you mm-hmm. know making me interested in mythology because they both really played up uh, you know played that aspect of very heavily, and I think it really works great for both of those characters. Uh, I forgot. I almost lost my my train of thought here. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Concept conceptually aside, uh, and yeah, I, I do think there's more to forgive when they're trying to line it up to mythology. Uh, just looking at you know the, the presentation in this book itself, uh, I, I've kind of said it many times. I always felt like that uh, Simonson is is somebody who I shouldn't like his art style, ha. and yet I do. You know, I, I look at the, the way he draws things and uh, it, it's just it's not, you know, it's not as clean as what I would normally like. And yet I like it anyway. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly why. Now, looking at this book, it you know, when I first glanced at it, when I didn't look closely, I actually thought it was a Simonson book uh, art wise. And then I looked a little more closely and you could see, no, that that's not Simonson. <laughs> and then I saw that it was Buscema and it's like, I'm impressed by the way he altered his style to fit the book that he was drawing. Mm-hmm. 
to make it look more Simonson-like. Uh, you know, when you look particularly at the faces is where you could see that it's not Simonson that, and that it is a Sal Buscema book. Uh, but I, I really think he, he did a, a really good job of, of making it look like Simonson's art. I'm curious what yeah. you guys think about that. Yeah, he, he, he has the exaggeration, not quite as much, but the uh, the size difference and the way the way people are. Uh, or especially the capes move around is a lot, lot more Simonson than Buscema. Uh, and I think, later, I think a lot on, of the line work looks like, yeah. uh, like Simonson. Yeah, and later on, Buscema takes over the art chores fully, but then it's his style. It's not an amalgam, but because it was just this one issue, it was a, a filler issue between Simonson uh, art. He he did a good job trying to to make it go smooth, but yeah, you're right. You look at the faces, and yep, that's that that looks quite a lot like uh, Bruce Banner waking up over there. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the, the two things about Simonson uh, about Pusima that are uh, kind of you know like the telltale signs to pick him out are, are the way he draws hair and the mm. way he draws mouths. Yes. Yeah. And and if if you look at this one, then you you start to see that in here. I I like the art in this. Um, I like it a lot more than I did when I was a kid. I've come to really like Sal Buscema a lot, and and a lot of that's because of his awesome run on uh, on Rom. I really came to to kind of fall in love with his style on that book. Um, but as a kid, I really didn't like his style. And I can remember uh, great disappointment um, when the Simonson drawn issues of the Simonson run would be interrupted by other artists. Mm. Um, and so when I first, uh, I don't think I remembered it from the cover, but when I flipped to the first page and saw, because I could tell right away that it wasn't Simonson, um, I remember thinking, oh, it's one of those issues. But um, I, I kind of had to, you know, take that back because I do like this. Now, I like Simonson's, you know, art a lot better on his stories, but this is good. I mean, I really like this. And, but one of the things I like about it is that while it's clearly Buscema, um, he is drawing with kind of like Buscema through a, a, a Simonson filter. And I kind of like that. It's it's kind of neat because they're there's certain aspects of this that I almost wonder if uh, if Simonson didn't either ink it or touch it up or something, because uh, especially on the page where um, the old man, I cannot remember this guy's, what was it, Tiwaz? Tiwaz. Where he is recounting Odin's possible origins. Mm-hmm. Uh, those Those two panels, the two mythological panels, really strongly look like um Simonson there to me like like possibly inked by Simonson himself, but there are no uh, other art chores listed here other than Sal Buscema, so I'm assuming he did the whole the whole thing, the pencils and the inks, but it doesn't yeah. say that well he he did on this one because if you later on in the run towards the end. Uh, where Thor has the the big confrontation with the Midgard serpent. Yeah. That had that was layouts by Simonson and finishes by Buscema. 
and you could tell. You could right. tell this is a Simonson yeah. thing inked by somebody else. Right. Uh, but the this I I think this is Buscema aping both Simonson style and I'm I'm trying to look it up now to see who the the artist actually was on the original Ring of Nebelung run because that's that uh, image of the four gods around Odin's spear is directly out of that. Uh, that wasn't Simonson too, was it? Because he actually no, had. I don't think fun. it was. No, it wasn't. I think it, it might have been John Buscema. Maybe. I think a lot of people forget about that earlier Simonson run because it's not—it's just not as well remembered or maybe as well regarded as the the later one, oh. you know, that's with Beta Ray Bill. But there is an earlier one that I thought was really good too. I think Roy Thomas wrote that, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, the the uh, Rings of Nibelung issues were drawn by Keith Pollard. Yes, uh, here it is. Uh, uh, this this image is from Thor 294. So that was Keith Pollard and Chick Stone doing the art on that. Keith Pollard was a hell of an artist, too. Oh, yeah. Speaking of that Ring of the Nebulum thing, um, uh, some books I picked up recently out of the dollar bins, I got all four of the, the DC Prestige um, books that are the adaptation of that by, um, I forget who wrote it. I want to say Roy Thomas, I think, um, but drawn by Gil Kane. I haven't seen those since I was a kid. I remember seeing him in a in a comic shop in Syracuse when I was a kid and wanting them so bad, but they were, they were some of the first uh, DC books I can remember that were like four or five. I think, I think they were either four ninety five or five ninety five a piece. I remember, I, I remember thinking I'll be goddamned if I'm going to pay that much for a comic <laughs> book. And that, so I didn't buy them, but I've wanted them all these years. And this is the first time I've seen them again. That had to be over 20 something years ago, probably pushing 30 years ago that I saw those. And, he, and they just showed up in the dollar box. So I was like, all right, I'm snagging these. So I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but they're, they're really pretty books. I, I can't wait to read them. No, I've, I've never seen those before. I'm going to have to I look them up. I don't think up. I have either. Yeah, I, like I say, this is the first time I've seen them in, in all those years, but uh, they're really nice. They're in that, that DC prestige um, format that had to be pretty new at the time that I'm trying to remember what year those came out. I want to say it, it's got, it's in the eighties. I'm saying, I'm thinking like mid eighties, probably right around Actually, the time. I, I just Dark looked Night it Returns up. And that. I just looked and, it up. Uh, it looks like it was 1989, 1990. Oh, okay. It was later than I thought. Then. Oh, wow. Yeah. But they're, they're nice. And, uh, I had totally forgotten that, uh, you know, not only are they Gil Kane, but they're in an adult format. So there's a there's a lot of nakedness in there by Gil Kane, which uh, I'm all for it. So yeah, good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to seek those out now. <laughs> Just because want list keeps keeps growing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Right? When you when you try and limit a want list, it's it, 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 want lists don't like to be limited. Yes. Oh, no, they, they do they, not. They have minds of their own. No, about a, about a month ago, I was thinking, you know, it's actually possible for me to complete my want list. What am I going to do when my want list is complete? And then I sat down just this past week 
and was doing searches for particular artists, like, you know, runs by particular artists. And I probably quadrupled my want list now just doing that of, of books that I, you know, that I want to get by particular artists. So, <laughs> Your yeah, want just, list laughed at you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just Tony Dizniga alone, I think, doubled my, my want list. But. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. Like I said, want lists don't like to be limited. They're like... Uh, nope. You, you could hear... Uh, Jeff Goldblum in the in the uh, in Jurassic Park, you know, like a <laughs> speech about how, how you can't control them. Right. Lists will find a way. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, the story is is terrific. Uh, we really didn't talk about it, other than the fact that it's adapting, you know, the mythology. It's touching. It's a very touching mm-hmm. story. I, I really I like this. Did he ever come back? Did we ever see him again? Yes, actually, he came back in the New Mutants. Uh, he, oh, yeah, that's that's yeah. right. I, I read that today, and I totally forgot about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that was basically yeah. it. I remember being excited learning that because I think I have those issues. I, I've got – I know it's not a complete run, but I have a huge – collection of new mutants that beyond the opening stuff with uh with bob mcleod i don't think i've ever read any issues beyond the first what, what did he work on that book like maybe a dozen issues right at the beginning yeah it wasn't very he, long yeah and then he left and somehow or other an almost complete collection of that has fallen in my lap and i've never cracked the cover on any of the other issues but i i probably have those issues that he's in so i'm gonna have to dig that out because uh, yeah, I, I like this guy. I was intrigued by him. I, I you know, he was just—he's he, the gentle giant grandfather. You know, he's, there's a certain—I mm-hmm. uh, don't know. Just picture your grandfather. Every time you go to eat a meal, he wants to beat you up. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, that part of it I thought was weird, but I figured there had to be some—it had to be some mythological thing because you know, gods—you know—they always played funny games and things like that. So I, yeah. I just—I just figured it was some holdover from mythology or something. Well, was, that not that specifically, but there is the rules of hospitality can get kind of weird, right? <laughs> it's so basically, if you you accept, okay, I am the guest in this person's house, I have to obey their rules. So if that's what he says we have to do, all right, fine. I guess that's what I have to do. Uh, He's the god of WWE or something. Well, there is wrestling in the Norse lore. There's actually one story where Thor has to try and – Thor, Loki, Loki and a couple kids end up going to uh, the giant – the giant's land, uh, Jotunheim. And they go to the castle of Utgard Loki, who is the giant king. And he said, "Okay, well, prove to me you're so mighty. You know, and one of the tasks is Thor has to wrestle this guy's old nursemaid. You know, and Thor can't do a damn thing. He can't get this woman in any hold, whatever. uh, And it's because the woman is actually the personification of old age and no one can beat old age. Ah, so that's that's probably where he's pulling the wrestling bit from. But if you think about it, you know, how are we going to make sure this warrior's rage to go back to what he's supposed to be doing? Well, make him fight once he can. If he can beat 
someone twice his size, he's ready to go. Right. So it just it it works out on a number of levels. I like Thor with the fur cape too. I think I think he looks mm. kind of cool with that with his regular cape underneath the fur cape. It, right. it just looks cool. He doesn't have his helmet either. I noticed in this, which I kind of liked. Yeah, that got knocked off at the end of the previous issue in the Avalanche. Uh, and yeah, there's there's only so many things that <laughs> that his great grandfather can pick up and carry, you know. Now, what was the battle on Earth that had just concluded here that that they're talking about? Was that the um, it wasn't the the mutant massacre thing, right? No, this was yeah. when Surtur and his fire demons came to Earth as a ruse to try and get them to open the Rainbow Bridge so that Surtur could go right. to Asgard. So I remember he, the Surtur thing. But I totally forgot that he ever came to Earth. I guess. Yeah, all the fire demons were on Earth. So the Asgardian army and the Norn army and the Avengers and the Fantastic Four, and it, you know, everybody was here trying to beat them back. So right. during that, during the Surtur's battle with Odin, Thor, and Loki in Asgard, the Rainbow Bridge was shattered. And if you remember the rest yeah. of Simonson's run, even into um, DeFalco and Friends, Asgard's adrift. It has no connection to Earth anymore. So that's why they can't get back. And the previous issue, Sif was able to go back, find found out about what happened to Odin, and then return to Earth and say, okay, guys, we got to wait here until they can figure out how to get us back, which happens, I think, three or four issues down the road. Just before Thor turns into a frog. I remember all this stuff in the vaguest of, of senses. I, I am so overdue for a re- complete reread of this whole this whole thing. Yeah, but, I, I've read this a number of times. I've got all five volumes of the uh, Thor Visionary Simonson, all of which are signed, by the way. Uh, uh, so no, I'm signed by Simonson, I believe. By Simonson, yes. No, no, he by was, me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> He was at Baltimore Comic Con the one year that him and Wheezy were there. So I took these five volumes and also a number of X Factor comics, uh, and that was Fall of the Mutants. So I I took I had uh, Wheezy sign the Fall of the Mutants stuff first, and then I was in line for Waltz, and he signed these. I hand him the X Factor ones, and they happened to be. It was a triptych cover. And he stood up, held up the issues and to the rest of the people in line and said, hey, look, somebody's got all three. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of it, I said, thank you very much for introducing me to my religion. And he said, oh, well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. <laughs> that is a dude. I am very jealous. That is a dude I would totally like to meet. But uh, I... I'd, I'd have a hard time figuring out the the, the books I'd want to get signed by him because yeah. there's so many of them. I know that there'd definitely be at least one Star Wars one in there somewhere because I, I love mm-hmm. his run on Star Wars. Oh yeah, yeah. If, if, he's done so much great stuff. Yeah one one of the early Star Wars issues I had was the uh, Bazaar issue where yeah. Lando and Luke go to the junk planet. Yeah, and that that I mean that was some gorgeous Simonson art. 
If you like that, seek out, um, if you don't already have it, seek out uh, Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. By you can find those in the cheap bins. And I, I can't speak to the quality of the stories, but the art is beautiful because he, I'm trying to remember which which way it goes. He either came to Star Wars from Battlestar Galactica or went to Battlestar Galactica from Star Wars. I forget. I think it was Battlestar Galactica to Star Wars. Yeah, but I mean, they're, they're kissing cousins. I mean, he, he mm-hmm. worked on both about the same time, and so the art style, you know, it's, it's consistent between the two and some really, really nice stuff. But Yeah, I, I have a few of those issues as well. Yeah, I've I've long been a been a fan of uh, of Simonson. He's he's one of those artists that uh, I'll read just about anything he he works on just because I really like his style. I love his stuff. Yeah, well, kind of goes with what I was saying though. Like, I enjoy it, but I I look at it and I think this is not something I should enjoy. I'm this- I'm exactly the same way. I mean, really, if my my very first comic was a Hulk comic from, drawn by Sal Buscema. <laughs> I love the art of John Byrne. I love the art of um, Jose, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I love these people that can draw things that look anatomically correct, perfectly proportioned and everything. But I also love Simonson. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't fit, but... I don't care. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's actually a, a decent number of artists that I could say the same thing that, you know, if, if I look, if you, if you look at them, they definitely do not fit the definition of the kind of style that I enjoy. And yet I do. And in some cases it's clearly nostalgia. It's, you know, they, they were on a book that I really enjoyed when I was a kid. And because of that, it's carried through and I still like it. Uh, in, in other cases, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's, things that I didn't like when I was a kid that I've grown to appreciate as I've gotten older. Mm. Uh, I would say, you know, Simonson might be in that group. Uh, Gil Kane is in that group. I, I liked a lot of Gil Kane's stories when I was a kid, but I didn't like his art. His art was too harsh for me. Uh, mm. But then as I got older, I started to really, really appreciate the, the dynamism of what he presents and, and you know, the, the style grew on me more and more as time went on. Uh, but he's, a, he's another one, though, like, if you look at it, it's not necessarily the clean art style that I would normally go for. And his anatomy, right. Kilkane's anatomy right. is often wonky. Uh, but, I, but I love his art now. So I, I completely agree with you, because I look at both Kane and Walt Simonson, and I think that those art styles are not very far removed from, say, Joe Kubert or present-day um, John Romita Jr., yet I really can't stand either of those guys, but I love – or there are, I should say, uh, but I love Simonson and Gil Kane. So I've, I've often wondered, you know, what is the difference? And I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something about their style I love and the Cuber the and uh, Ramita Jr. that I, I just can't cotton to. So I, I don't know. It's, it's weird because, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's not necessarily the, the kind of style that, that I gravitate to, but there's just something about it I love. So, yeah, I don't know. I totally agree. <laughs> so are we going to rate this one? Yeah, I think it's about yeah. that time, isn't it? <laughs> sure, All right. Gene, A's across uh, the board. How'd you guess? 
Actually, it is A's across the board. I mean, uh, the cover, Simonson on Thor, done. <laughs> the story, as we've been going over, it's it's touched in the mythology. It moves subplots along. Uh, it, it gives you a satisfying ending, gives you a twist ending. Uh, it's it's just wonderful. And the art, Busema, I love just unconditionally is his work on the Hulk is what one of the things that got me into comics him you trying to ape Simonson and even Keith Pollard for a panel it it just looks great so yeah it's A's across the board for me okay uh, the cover <laughs> It's hard again. It, it kind of goes to like the same thing that we've been saying about Simonson. I should not <laughs> like this cover. Uh, you know, you, it, it's not clear. You know, like just the angle that it's at. It's so atypical uh, of what we, you know, what we'd normally expect on a cover that it, that I shouldn't like it. The, uh, you know, just the positioning of the bodies just doesn't look quite right. Uh, and yet, I re- it, it's very, very eye-catching, and I think I would be very apt to pick this up on the stands. So while while I don't think it lays out the way I would normally want it to, I still think it's a really solid color. I'm going to say a cover, rather. I'm going to say a B plus, not quite an A. Uh, it doesn't quite reach that level for me. Um, but it also, you know, it's also given us a, a clue as to what we're going to see inside. So I like that. The interior art, uh, I think it's pretty solid. I, I, I you know, I, I am a, a fan of uh, of Busema, and even more so when he when he shows a little bit of flexibility like this. Uh, I'm not quite to A on that either, though. I'm going to say a B plus on the interior art. I, I think it's really good. It's it's a good job by him of making it look Simonson like, but it's not quite A material for me. Uh, and the story. I, I think the story is the best thing of, of all because I'm that I think is just a solid a uh, just you know very enjoyable it really gives you something and at the end you sit there and you say ah <laughs> so I mean what more could you want uh, so I'm, I'm gonna say it averages out to an a minus book for me all right um, cover on this one I really like the cover I think it's a, a very dynamic image um, however it's one of those um, trying to remember what they call it, like the, the poster image style covers, you know, where there's not really any verbiage or anything like that. Um, there's no backgrounds to speak of. So it really is just the two figures clashing. Um, so I, I think I'm going to go an A minus on the cover. I really do like it, though. Uh, and I mean, come on, who doesn't like, it? you know, seeing their, their uh, kid give their grandfather a hug? So yeah, <laughs> there's that aspect to it. Um, interior art, I like it a lot. As I say, I, I really like Sal Buscema. I like that he's doing a really good job of, uh, of aping the, the Simonson style and everything. Um, although I, I still think, you know, there's, there's vast room for improvement here. So I'm actually going to say a, a B minus, uh, on the art. Uh, I like it a lot. I do think it's a serious step up from some of the other, uh, Sal Buscema stuff that I've seen, but, uh, I, I think that, you know, it can be tightened that much more. And, I kind of wonder if uh, if it might be the inks. I'd really like to know who inked this, if he inked it himself or if there was someone else uh, on the inks with this. 
Um, and then the story, I'm going to give the story a straight up A. I really like the story. Um, it's, it's heartwarming and touching and, uh, and I really like this. You know, I, I came to, you know, I came to really, you know, like and, and care for the character enough to where, you know, I was hoping that this wasn't it for him. So yeah, it, uh, it worked on a lot of levels. So grade wise, I, I think it all balances out. I'll say, um, I'll say an A minus for the, for the overall book. I, I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. I'm glad you two got had a, a good time reading this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that brings us to my book, which I understand brings out the inner geek in some of us, the science geek <laughs> in some of us. <laughs> we'll get to that. Don't worry. So I picked Firestorm number three, which is the introduction of the character of Killer Frost. For you people who are younger and uh, only know Killer Frost from the uh, TV series, uh, this is where she first started. So the cover date on it is June of 1978. It has a cover price of 35 cents. The cover is by Al Milgram, and it's a close-up of Killer Frost holding Firestorm in an embrace and kissing him as icicles form on him, and he looks helpless and worried with frozen skeletons looking on. And uh, the cover copy says, Heed the warning of the frozen dead. Kiss not the lips of Killer Frost, which is the title of our story, Kiss Not the Lips of Killer Frost. It's brought to us by Firestorm's creators, who are Jerry Conway and Al Milgram, and it's inked by Bob McCloud. Uh, the story opens with Firestorm intimidating bookworm bully Cliff Carmichael who turns the Flash Thompson trope on its ear and bullies Ronnie Raymond for being a jock. However, as we know, Firestorm is a composite of Ronnie Raymond and Professor Stein, who is the subordinate half and subject to Ronnie's control. In this instance, Ronnie is delaying the good professor's appointment at a military air base and is very cavalier about the... Uh, about what he's doing to him there. But no worries, as the professor has no memory of the activity as Firestorm, and is left just to think he's going insane. So, while Ronnie revels in Cliff's more meek presence, he ignores Doreen, the hot blonde who is very much, uh, excuse me, very, very much more interesting than the nerd, but oh well. Meanwhile, Professor Stein makes his way to the Arctic, where they're trying to use his experimental condenser to use heat from Earth's core for energy, because that can't possibly be a bad idea. When they land, the greeting party includes Crystal for Frost, who was once a student of Professor Stein and is now in charge of the cooling plant and has requested Professor, St Professor Stein's presence. Despite her being in charge, the male scientists ignore her and shut her out. Uh, she brings the professor to a massive refrigeration unit, several acres in size, where the temperature can drop to minus 1,000 degrees centigrade. Her thoughts, her thoughts provide us with her background, where she attended the professor's class and fell in love with him from afar. She declares her love for, the, for him, and, he is, and she's highly insulted when he doesn't reciprocate. She storms off and stupidly accidentally locks herself into the refrigeration unit, which for some reason doesn't have any safety protocols. After hours, her absence is noted, and the male scientists realize where she is. At that point, she bursts out, declaring that Crystal Frost is dead, killed by rejection, 
and Killer Frost has been born. She starts freezing people with her ice powers and even shows an ability to fly on a swirl of cold air and goes off seeking Professor Stein. We cut to Manhattan where Ronnie Raymond is dominating a high school basketball game but is distracted by goings-ons going on in the stands. We cut back to the Arctic quickly where Killer Frost has caught up with Professor Stein and starts to freeze kiss him which causes Ronnie to react all the way in New York and screw up the game. He runs to the locker room and combines with the professor to become Firestorm and finds himself in Killer Frost's freezing embrace, much like on the cover of the issue. She leaves him encased in ice, and professor, the professor advises Ronnie to use nuclear heat to free himself. He does that and then blasts Frost with heat, but she just absorbs it. She freezes the ceiling to cause it to collapse on him, but he rearranges the atomic structure of the debris. He attempts to do the same to her, but experiences an energy feedback, and he engages her in further battle when the professor surmises that she actually absorbs heat, but needs the warmth to thrive. Firestorm activates refrigeration units and freezes her, ending our story with her frozen in the unit. A lot of stuff happening again. You know, this this is the uh, the compressed storytelling of the of the day, uh, and I guess we're going to get a little science lesson in a moment when Gene, <laughs> when Gene tells us what what bothered him so much. I mean, I'm thinking, and I am not the science nerd, but I'm thinking there's all sorts of possibilities for 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 the science to have been wrongly uh, presented in the story. Uh, on, uh, just on on many many different areas because there's so many things that Conway seems to take a uh, you know take a little bit of liberty with to just say oh yeah this happens because of this uh, so I'm not sure exactly which one's got your uh, your neck hair uh, rising but we're gonna find out in a moment uh, but overall I think you know it's a it's a fairly iconic villain at this point uh, being created here. Uh, you know, the origin is relatively simple. Uh, you know, of course, you would just be dead if you were in there. You wouldn't you wouldn't get ice powers, but that's besides the point. Uh, at least it wasn't radiation. Um, and, you know, I, I do like the the dynamic that were presented between Stein and Ronnie. Uh, just, you know, the whole Ronnie being an inconsiderate teenager and the way he acts uh, just feels like it rings true to some extent. Uh, you know, I, I like the turning the trope on, on its ear where, where the bully is actually the nerd uh, who bullies him for being a, jack, a jock, making fun of him, you know, for not being smart enough or whatever. So it totally turns around the Flash Thompson-Peter Parker dynamic. Uh, you know, I, I think Conway had, had a lot of ability at this time in particular to create characters and, and give us some new stuff. And, uh, you know, I think we, we got a lot of that in this issue, a lot of, or in this series, a lot of, you know, good groundwork that was laid. Uh, Al Milgram, not one of my favorite artists. You know, his, his work to me is always just very average. And, I, you know, I don't feel that there's any point where he really rises above it. Although I think the cover is pretty solid. Uh, that's about it for me. What do you guys think? <laughs> You want rant now or rant later? <laughs> Should I rant now or when, I, or when we get home? <laughs> uh, whatever you want, Gene. Wherever you feel okay. it's appropriate. Well, 
this is a superhero comic book, so you have to have some leeway. Two people combining into one being. Okay. A woman locked in a freezer suddenly gains the ability to manipulate heat and cold. Okay. I can, I can go with a lot of stuff, but there's a quote from Mr. Spock. It says, if I hold a hammer on a planet, or if I let go of a hammer on a planet with positive gravity, I do not need to look at it to know that it has fallen. Okay, because there are some absolutes. One of those is absolute zero. Now, absolute zero is the absence <laughs> of all heat. <laughs> Anyone care to guess what temperature that would actually be? I don't know, but it's funny that you're going on about this because I had the same thought. I didn't bother to look it up, but when she, when I read the thing where she says <laughs> minus a thousand centigrade, yeah. I thought, what the hell temperature is absolute zero? Because I thought you'd hit it before you hit a thousand degrees negative. So absolute zero is negative two hundred and seventy three <laughs> degrees centigrade. So I read this. And I'm like, hold the phone. <laughs> I actually, because it was on my tablet, I zoomed in on that panel, showed it to my wife, who also has an engineering degree, and said, what's wrong with this? And she said, that's way too cold. That is impossible. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to quote a movie I've never seen. Their dials go to 11. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See, Even I, I did not know where absolute zero was, so that did not pique my interest as I read yeah. through it. Uh, I mean, I did think the number was extraordinarily low, and by low I mean high. Yeah. Um, Drop but, a zero off of that, and I'm fine. <laughs> you know. Well, you know, you know, I, I think for. for true effect as as a writer, it might have worked if she had dropped it to absolute zero. If that was the yeah. number. Mm -hmm. if, and, and it wouldn't have taken too much research to find right. out what that number is, even in the pre-internet days that, uh, <laughs> right. that Conway wrote this. Or even if it's pre-internet days, don't say minus 1,000 degree or minus 270 or whatever. Just say, and it dro drops it to almost absolute zero. Done. <laughs> right. Slight wording change. No research required. But it's, it's, just, it's so funny because I really did have that thought because, I mean, you know, I grew up in upstate New York where negative 50 degrees is not, you know, it, it is a fairly common thing in the wintertime, you know. So I remember like at some Florida. point in my life hearing about absolute zero. And, yeah, I did have that thought when I read that, that, wow, that sounds, you know, what what the hell temperature is absolute zero? Because that sounds like you'd hit it before you'd hit a thousand negatives. So that. It's just so funny that <laughs> apparently absolute zero is negative a zillion. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. She she just you know uses her own temperature scale. That's all. Yep. <laughs> well, bad science aside, what do you think of the story? <laughs> I like you said it's compressed, but you know really for this era. It's the origin of a villain that you have to wrap up at the end. And quite frankly, I like the the idea behind her as far as she's not Iceman. She is not creating ice on things. She is absorbing the heat out of them. And that's that is actual real science because there's no such thing as generating cold. It, it, you are moving heat from one thing to another. 
So the fact that he beats her by taking away all that heat and freezing her is is genius. But uh, it's it's just pretty pretty dang quick. And to be honest, I don't think I am on board with with Firestorm after the first two pages. It's like, oh, great. He's a super-powered bully. Just what I want to read about. But in in the way he's presented here, it's almost the reverse. Like I said, the the Ooh. nerd actually bullies him for not being smart. Yeah, but that's not <laughs> that I don't see that. I see cuz I I am not a huge Firestorm reader. I've I've read a couple issues here and there, but I've never I've never read his original miniseries or what was <laughs> what ended up being a miniseries. Uh, so just to see him fly in like he's going to rip this guy apart, pick him up by by his jacket and threaten him. All the while, Professor Sign is saying, you idiot, stop doing this. It doesn't make for a very sympathetic main character. No, it doesn't. And I <laughs> think that gives it an element of realism, to be honest with you, mm -hmm. because your average high school student, if you give him superpowers, even if he's a generally good kid is definitely going to have moments where he acts like a jerk. Right. I agree. So overall, I, I kind of like that. And, and I like, I think especially in this era, I think it was especially creative of Conway. And I assume it's Conway, but Mel Milgram may have had a lot to do with it hmm. uh, to come up with the concept of the dual personalities put together and that the high school student is the dominant one and that, the, you know, the brilliant professors kind of along for, for the ride. I, I just think that's a concept, you know, you really didn't see anything similar to that. Uh, you know, when this, when this series first came out, you know, I think it was another one where it was like, okay, we're going to play on the Spider-Man formula, you know, with the high school student and all of that. Uh, but I think that dynamic between him and professor Stein totally changed that dynamic. I agree. Yeah. The, the interaction yeah, I, between uh, those two is nice. I didn't, when, when you told me what issue this was and I, I looked it up, I didn't recognize the cover on this, but as soon as I flipped the page, I got really, really excited because is this a uh, coverless one for you. It was, uh -huh. it was the only issue of his original series that I had as a kid to this day. I think I only have one other issue that I've managed to acquire. Um, but I had this as a kid. I don't think it's the very first firestorm story I ever read. I think that was actually, um, either the just, you know, one of the early justice league issues he was in, or, um, one of my all time favorite comics, is DC Comics Presents, I think it's number 17, Superman and Firestorm, which is a sequel to this story. Uh, Star Labs uh, calls Superman in to use his heat vision to thaw out uh, Killer Frost and sets her loose, and she actually t uh, makes Superman her slave through her ice powers. It is a great story. If you've never uh -huh. read it, you need to check it out because it's awesome. The art by uh, Garcia Lopez is absolutely incredible in that issue. I think that was my introduction to Firestorm. But anyway, you know, it's funny. I don't think I've ever said this in all the years that I've been podcasting, but I am a huge Firestorm fan. Um, 
a lot of that was because of the Fury of Firestorm series just happened to hit at the right time for me, just as I was getting seriously into comics. And that was written by um, Jerry Conway, you know, so his co-creator, the writer. And then um, the art for the first, I don't know, a year or better was Pat Broderick at, right at the top of his game. And uh, while I, I can see where you would ha- have a negative impression of the character from this gene, I would say give Fury of Firestorm a try sometime because it's really, really good. And this issue right here um, creates a lot of threads that I remember being picked up and run with in Fury of Firestorm. One of the big ones being um, while Ronnie is kind of an asshole to the professor here in the fact that he's the he's in control of the firestorm body so he can make the decisions on where they're going to uh, you know unfuse or, or mm-hmm. you know fission back out and he knows the professor won't remember any of it so he can kind kind of get away with doing dirty tricks to him the thing where he's walking away on page 3 and he says i feel lousy about this that picks up later in the early issues of Fury of Firestorm, where eventually he comes clean to the professor about what's been happening to him because Stein, I think he loses his job. He either loses his job or he's, he's being threatened to be, to lose his job. Well, he becomes and an he, alcoholic because of it. Right? Yeah, he does. And he thinks he's going nuts. I mean, he thinks yeah. he's, he's losing his mind because of these blackouts. He, he literally doesn't remember what's happening to him and it's and it has some really dire consequences on his life so ronnie does do the right thing and he eventually steps up and ronnie himself has something's going on in his i'm trying to remember something with his dad or something yeah i'm trying to remember if he had an abusive dad or he just had a bad relationship with his dad or something there was a lot of Peter Parker-esque drama in in the early issues that plays really well, and you come to really like Ronnie as a character. But it's funny, you know, I've heard a lot of comparisons to Ronnie Raymond to Peter Parker, and I think Conway himself has made them, but he actually, to me, he always reminded me a lot more of Richard Ryder than Peter Parker. So I kind of like you know that mm-hmm. comparison a little bit better. Well, Richard uh, Ryder was also kind of inspired by peter parker as well right yeah yeah in fact that was i mean i I seem to remember you know early on they used to promote it that way you know right senses shattering style of (laughs) spider-man and uh cliff carmichael remains an asshole for his entire existence i know (laughs) that character i think eventually him and ronnie do come to kind of a, a an uneasy truce much like peter and flash did i don't know that they ever become true friends like Peter and Flash seem to, but I, I know that their relationship does somewhat get better down the road. And I'm trying to remember Doreen. Was she Firehawk? Does she become Firehawk? No, Firehawk was. She was the daughter of a senator. That. That's right. That Firestorm had to save at one point. Yeah. yeah. I I know some of the character. I've read the character. Yeah. Read, read him in Crisis. I've read him in Legends. Uh, so I I've read some of his issues. I like the character. It's just when you read the these just these first two, it's like okay, I don't know what happened in issues one and two, but damn, right? <laughs> that that's kind of a you know uh, this this the guy's head's on fire, <laughs> and he, he's picking up this high school student, and you can just see Carmichael is 
scared witless <laughs> at this point. While it may not be the most, you know, ethical or heroic thing to do, at the same rate, I, I think it has a, a degree of realism to it oh, because, yeah, I mean, who, who amongst us hasn't had the thought that if, you know, if I had the powers of XYZ hero, you know, I make them do certain things yeah. that are not entirely, you know, on the up and up and, and heroic. You know, if I was mm-hmm. Superman, you know, I'd, you know, I, you've heard it you know, from people yeah. before, you know, I'd use my X-ray vision to look into the girl's locker room or I'd rob banks or, you know, whatever. And, and here he's, you know, he's not being evil, but at the same rate, he is not using uh, great responsibility with his great <laughs> power. So, but I, I love it. I, this, this to me was like visiting an old friend. This, I, I love this character. Um, when I moved to uh, the Atlanta area in the early nineties and had easy access to multiple, you know, really good comic shops. One of the very first things I did was went out and completed my, uh, my fury of firestorm collection. I, I'm very proud of the fact that I have the entire run, but oddly I have never gone back and, uh, and filled in this original. Um, I don't think this was meant to be a mini series. I think it was it meant to be a series, but it only ran, I think Five or six issues. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was a casualty of the implosion, unfortunately. Yeah, it's funny because you know I I have all of Fury of Firestorm. I think I have in between this and Fury of Firestorm, he was a backup in um, the Flash. Much of, if not all of, was drawn by uh, George Perez. Mm. And I think I have all of those, but I, for some weird ass reason, I never went back and got the original series. And I don't, I don't think I've even read the original series. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to have to go back and, uh, and correct that oversight at some point. But man, I, I, I love this. It's just, it's so funny. I'm, I'm just hanging on that opening splash page. Cause for me as a kid, that was the cover. I didn't mm. have you know, a, a coverless, co- or I mean, I didn't have a covered copy of this. I had a coverless copy. Well, I think and the cover is actually the highlight art, art-wise of the book. So, the cover? Yes. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I don't, I don't like the cover. <laughs> I, I think it's a fairly <laughs> iconic cover, actually. Um, it's not. I like. I, I, not crazy about the facial expression on firestorm it's a little too simplistic in the way it's drawn right it's kind of that's kind of my criticism of everything al milgram drew uh <laughs> I, I still kind of i still think that this is one of his that's one of his best things that that cover is one of the best artistic things he did that i've ever seen it is the exact same facial expression he has in the book though yes i mean the exact same except it's drawn whatever four times the size or however much yeah. bigger it is. So it's, it's, it, it highlights the lack of detail. I think when you, when you blow it up like that. Well, I think the big difference is that the cover is just Milgram, whereas the interior is Milgram being inked by Bob McLeod, which come on, McLeod's one of the greatest inkers. So, you know, I, I think he's really filling in, um, on, you know, I was going to say some of the artistic gaps, but then again, I like Al Milgram. I mean, you know, he, I, I agree with you to a, to an extent. You know, he's he is very workmanlike. He doesn't have the most dynamic style, but I've always liked the guy. I don't dislike his style. It it does tend to be a little simplistic though, and I think that uh, uh, McLeod is really shoring him up here. 
his style would never drive me away from a book where, you know, where I'd say, oh, I can't read this because, you know, the art is horrible. That would never happen. But I would also never say, oh, I got to pick up this book. Al Milgram drew it. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. That's yeah, that's fair. I, I like some of the things he's doing with the art inside, uh, especially where he's got the the characters going across panel borders and things like that, because it it, mm-hmm. it, it dr- helps drive the, I was going to say action, but not all of them are action. Like, it's uh, Frost's hand comes across the panel borders, and she's essentially pointing into her flashback. So it, it, it works nicely, I think. Uh, you're right, it's not, this isn't top-of-the-line art, but I I actually enjoyed it. I actually I I like the the interior better than the cover myself. Okay, well, teach their own. Yeah. You know, after the the introductory pages, you know, with him uh, bullying Carmichael. I mean, you've got five pages of just exposition and dialogue, mm. and you know those artistic choices you're talking about. You know, with crossing panel borders and and you know some of the design and everything still keep it visually interesting. So it's not just a boring read. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I, I think he's got a good visual sense. It's just you know whether or not you like his his individual style or not. Yeah. Well, fair enough. And it's not just really not my cup of tea so much and again it's not that it would ever drive me away Mm -hmm. i I just never think it's you know it'll never reach the level of being you know exemplary right i've always had such a soft spot for this character too killer frost for so many reasons i like i say you know this this was a favorite issue of mine as a kid i I love that dc comics presents with superman and then uh, of course you know she and firestorm were uh, a big part of uh, crisis on infinite earths you know they they got a lot of screen time per se uh, you know in the in the early issues of that because she uh, got mind whammied by the psycho pirate and was in love with firestorm for like an issue or two during uh, during the crisis which i always got a kick out of now i, I think Gene, your choice of uh, description earlier is is apt in that you said, you know, he's a victim of the implosion because, to my knowledge, Firestorm, I think, was a popular character despite the fact that his got, series got canceled. And I think if they hadn't, you know, pulled back on what they were producing, I don't think the series ever would have been canceled or it wouldn't have been canceled, at least in, in such a short run. Right. Uh, you know, that's right. that's why I think they, you know, they made a point of, you know, giving him a backup feature in the flesh and then bringing him into the JLA. So, you know, because I do think there was a level of popularity for this character that that contradicted the fact that the book got canceled. So. Well, he was also um, he became one of the characters on the Super Friends too. Although I'm struggling, I'm trying to look up here what what year that was. He may have been pretty well established by the time that happened. But I don't remember if he had his book again by that point, or I don't think he did. Or if that helped him regain a book, I, I really don't remember. Uh, that was it was close to the crisis, I think. It was uh, the legendary Superpowers show was the, the name yeah. of it. Yeah. I just, I can't remember. Le- Super Friends Legendary Superpowers show was 
September 84 to August of 85. So, so yeah, he he definitely had his own book again by that point. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I'm looking here at a. I'm looking here at a wiki. It says the Super Super Friends fandom wiki, and for the entry on Firestorm on that show, the quote um, is from Firestorm number three, the issue that we're looking at. That's pretty. That's funny. Yeah, I do love this character, though. All right. So I, I liked him we, all the way uh, up until he got his, his really, he got this really weird, like, fire elemental look right towards the end of uh, a Fury of Firestorm, and that's where they yeah. kind of lost me. But the, Well, the, that's, I, that's I, when he was just Professor Stein at that point. Right, yeah. I've never yeah. read up to that point. I've read stuff earlier and, and I've seen those issues and said oh I gotta see what that was all about but I never, never got through those oh, I it, never got it was through. fun I don't I don't remember a lot of the details of that as well as I remember the early issues because you know I read them as an adult you know when I could just blow through a stack of, of comics and I wasn't as invested in them but it was interesting because you know there, there was a lot of experimenting done with you know the the not only the professor and ronnie dynamic but also um a different person a russian guy got brought in for a time Mm -hmm. into the the fusion and you know so there was all kinds of weird stuff but uh ultimately if if this was still the character if it was still ronnie and the professor i i would still you know be be very invested in the character but i think uh, i think ronnie died and I don't think they ever brought him back, if I'm not mistaken. They, I don't, they brought the they brought him back in New Fifty Two. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that would be your reaction. Yeah. Of course, they brought him back. <laughs> uh. So, we ready to rate? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm gonna. I I think I like the cover more than either of you. Uh, I think it's borderline iconic. I think this is almost one, you know, that you, you know, I could see this hanging on the wall in, in comic shops. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not the most detailed and it, you know, it's Al Milgram. Um, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to say, Poor a, Al I'm going to say, I'm going to say a B plus, uh, you know, which is a, you know, unfortunately, it's about as good as I think I'm going to get from El Milgram. It's, and, and I feel bad because everything I've ever heard is that he's a hell of a nice guy or was a hell of a nice guy. Uh, so I, I hate to... Was he to, dead? I thought he was gone, but I'm not sure now. Uh, according to Wikipedia, he is still alive and All coming right, well, to kick your ass. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to say such things about you, Al, but everything I always heard was that he is a nice guy. So I, I hate putting his art down but on the other hand i'm not giving it a, a solid rating just because somebody's nice it's not like well he could draw stick figures but he's such a nice guy i'm gonna give it an a um so i, I mean i think this is a, it's a solid cover it's i think it's really well laid out uh and i i like i said i think it's borderline iconic so i'm gonna say a b plus on the cover the interior art uh yeah, it's fairly solid it's the storytelling is fine but you know, it doesn't make me, uh, you know, excited to, to look at the artwork either. So I'm, I'm going to say it's, you know, it's better than average. It's not great. I'm going to say, a, a, you know, C plus. Uh, and the story, you know, with scientific uh, silliness aside, 
I think it's kind of cool. I like, you know, like I said, a lot of things about the dynamic. And, you know, I like that Professor Stein's the one who's kind of in play here as opposed to Ronnie. So I'm going to say an A- minus on the story. And overall, I'm going to give the book a solid B. All right. I just uh, friended him on, uh, on Facebook. I'm going to invite him on the show so you can apologize to him. <laughs> <laughs> Al, do you know what Paul said about you? <laughs> this cover, by the way, uh, Firestorm number three was just posted six hours ago on the DC Comics fans uh, 1956 to 1986 group. <laughs> just happened to pop up on Facebook for me. All right. Anyway, back to the show. Um I like the cover, but I'm not crazy about the cover. Um, for one thing, the skeleton. What's the deal with the skeletons? There's no skeletons in the book, so I don't know what what that's all supposed to be about. Um, it's weird. It's it's more like Walking Dead or something. It's just kind of odd looking. Mm. But I say a B minus on the cover. I think a lot of the the my issue with it is the fact that it's it's Milgram. I'm presuming Milgram inking Milgram because he's the only cover credit being given here. It's clearly different from the art style that's in the book. Um, the interior art I like a lot, but of course a lot of that is because of uh, Bob McCloud. I am a Bob McCloud mark from way back. I I love this guy's art. I love his uh, his inks. I, I really I I like his whole art style. I like when he uh, does all of the art himself, but you know, his inks here, I think really shore this up a lot and it looks really good. Uh, and I think the coloring is really good in this one too. The color works. It's, uh, it, it, there's a, it a helps heavy the mood. Yeah. yeah, it does. It sets the mood. There's a, a heavy use of color without it becoming weird. If you know what I mean, or, or distracting, it just, it, it really helps. As you say, it helps the mood. Uh, who's the colorist? Mario Sen. Yeah, I don't know who that is. I don't recognize that name. Um, so interior art on this. Uh, hmm. That's a tough one. I, I think I'm gonna go. I think I'm gonna go an A minus on the art. I really like it. There's a there's a little bit of wonkiness here and there, but overall, I really like the interior art on this. And then the story. Um, you know, forgiving, you know, the, the mistake with absolute zero and, and then just some of the wackiness of the science in general. You know, the fact that, you know, it's never really explained. How did she become killer? For, I mean, she got stuck in a freezer and now she has frostbite. OK, whatever. You know, so she wasn't bitten by a radioactive icicle or something. There's just <laughs> nothing to explain how the hell she got these powers, which is kind of goofy. <laughs> Yeah, nope. exactly. It has to be something. I mean, they, yeah. they should have gone with something. You know, she's I don't know if they could use the word mutant, but, you know, that her mutant power kicked in or something. But um, but anyway, um, I think I'm going to go straight up a on the story. I, I, I love this one. A lot of that is probably nostalgia talking because, you know, I did have this as a kid. And I really loved this as a kid. I, I read it a lot. Um, and, it, and of course, it plays into that other story I was talking about. But. Uh, overall, great on this one. Straight up A. Uh, I, I love this book. It's nice. it's right in my sweet spot. So yeah, I like this one a lot. All right. Well, I'm I'm not so hot on on the cover, like you said. Those those skeletons. That's kind of weird. I mean, if you had just had the bodies of the scientists there, or <laughs> just human but frozen human bodies, it would be fine. But that's that's a right. little odd. Uh, they do have 
they did put in the the freezing chamber behind it so you you're getting scenes kind of from the inside so i i can give that kind of a pass but it's it doesn't doesn't grab me too much so i'm i'm actually going to say a c plus on on the cover uh most the, it's not a b minus just because of um firestorm's fish mouth there that's just kind of <laughs> the <Cool>. interior art <laughs> The interior art, though, like you said, is is it it's good. It's not top of the line. It's you know it's not Jim Aparo, for example. Right. But it he they do some nice stuff with the panel borders. I like the uh, instead of the rounded corners for the flashback, everything is in is frozen. It's all iced up. Yeah. So it it's a it's a nice little continuity thing. The the storytelling is good, though. You get the, the the panel layouts give you that sense of time, which is sometimes tough to do, especially when you're dealing with things that are just exposition. So you, you get the, okay, well, this is a long period of time, and then we're shortening it a little bit, and then we're back, you know, the the long, narrow panel that's her stuck in there for hours. The basketball game is all these narrow panels, so it's you know it's quick action. So it's it. I, I like the art. I'm gonna say the the interior art's probably a B plus. The story. This is the first time I've read the story. I I knew about it. I I listened to Fire and Water podcast, so yes, I I've heard Chad go on and on about this kind of thing. Uh, but it's it's a it's a good story. The you know throwing me out with the the absolute zero. Mix up, yeah, it's, but it's comic book science, you know. Of course, I built this entire room, which is a huge freezer unit. That's a little over the top. And oh yeah, uh, if if anyone locks themselves in here, you can't get out. However, <laughs> I can kind of give that a pass because we just watched the other day. We just watched an episode of uh, Deadliest Catch, right? <laughs> so uh, they're on the boat and they can't find the one guy and so oh, crap did he fall overboard what's going on they're searching and searching he was in the bait freezer guess what the bait freezer doesn't have a latch on the inside whoops <laughs> so he got stuck in there like killer frost he was in there <laughs> for hours so he didn't develop ice powers or anything uh, oh. <laughs> i do like the uh the guest starring of uh, Aquaman, Aqualad, and the host of Twinkies. <laughs> Those always throw Maybe me they off. Maybe they should have just given Killer Frost a Twinkie, and it would have yeah. everything would have been all right. <laughs> Here, have a warm Hostess fruit pie. <laughs> <laughs> but the, overall, I I like the story. I like the the idea of her power set being absorbing heat, not projecting cold. So it's that part of the science works. Uh, Firestorm figuring out, oh, okay, well, I'll just recreate the thing that created her in the first place, and that'll stop her. Unfortunately, everybody else is dead, (laughs) because (laughs) there's nothing you can do. Um, So I'm going to give the story a B. So I guess that that brings the overall... I'm going to give it a B overall. It's it's a solid issue, just some things I, I wasn't too crazy about. All right. 
All right, so we got one more book to cover for this evening, and I've got the indie this time around. So we are going to be looking at Anne Rice's The Mummy, or Ramsey's the Dead, or excuse me, Ramsey's the Damned, rather. Ramsey's the Damned, book one. Uh, this is going back to uh, October 1990 for this one. It was published by Millennium Publications, which was a uh, little-known and short-lived uh comics company they were around for i don't know just a couple of years they had a couple of dozen uh titles to their name and then they just i don't know i guess they must have folded um i've only ever read just a handful of their books but uh you can find uh 50 cent boxes uh across the nation littered with with their content so um I actually the issues of this series that I that I have in my collection I don't have the full run but the issues I do have I think I bought brand new off the stands intending to one day get the whole series and I just never have but uh, anyway this is an adaptation spread over twelve issues of the Anne Rice novel of the same name uh, the Mummy or Ramsey's the Damned which I actually read uh, I think. When it came out, or shortly after it came out, it came out in like 1989, I think. Um, and uh, my memories of it are are vague, but uh, certain scenes from it really stand out in my mind. I remember just really liking it. So uh, you know, this uh, adaptations, uh, you know, reading the whole adaptation is something I've been meaning to do for a long time. So I'm actually right now in the process of reading the adaptation and kind of refreshing my memory on it. Uh, anyway, this is adapted by uh, Faye Perozich, I'm presuming is how the name is pronounced, Layouts by John uh, Heber and Melissa Martin. And then the interiors are fully painted by uh, Mark Menendez. So... The book actually starts, uh, and so far each issue that I've gotten through of this, I'm about five or six issues into this, um, has the same uh, like little saying on the inside of it here. And it starts, uh, it says, Robbers of the dead, look away from this tomb, lest you wake its occupant, whose wrath cannot be contained. Ramses the Damned is my name, which I thought was kind of cool. And the, the actual story in this first issue uh, starts with that. You've got... Uh, an archaeologist and his Egyptian colleague are reading this inscription on the wall of a recently discovered tomb. Unheeding of the many warnings in various tongues, uh, they blast their way into a chamber where they discover mysteries aplenty, none more confounding than the mummy, Ramses himself, who claims not only to be immortal, uh, but to have uh, had himself entombed after the loss of his love, uh, his love, which was Cleopatra. Now they're reading all of this from uh, scrolls and, and a diary, essentially that they find inside the tomb. Uh, we are briefly introduced to other players in the story, such as the shiftless, no good nephew of the archaeologist, who's trying to get his uncle to sign away. Uh, permission for his daughter to marry some guy whose father will pay the nephew well for the arrangement or something. There's the whole money scheme here. I didn't really care or wasn't really that interested in that aspect of the stories. I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the reasons and whatnot behind that. But anyway, uh, when the scientist tires of his nephew's antics, he orders him out of the tomb and out of Egypt 
The nephew then tricks his scientist uncle into drinking coffee laced with poisons from the ancient tomb, and the uncle dies with only the still and lifeless mummy of Ramses, the only witness to the deed. There is much plotting and intrigue between the nephew and his father back in London, uh, none of which is integral to the synopsis, really. So I'm just going to kind of shortchange that part of the story. What is important is that the mummy winds up at the scientist's home and in the care of his grieving daughter, who is pretty fascinated by him. One night, her cousin, the nephew that poisoned her father, visits to find out her plans and intentions, of which he is personally invested because he makes his living leeching off her father's successes. And he fears that she may just cut him off now that she's in charge of the family affairs. As she frets with this situation, uh, we see the nephew uh, reach into his pocket and then serve her a cup of coffee a moment later, just like he had done to his uncle when he murdered him. She seems to take a sip and we get a close up of her startled expression. So we're kind of being led to believe that maybe she's being poisoned as well. But then you turn the page and we see him asking uh, the, the nephew asking Julie what the devil's the matter with you as behind him, Ramses the Damned emerges from his sarcophagus and suddenly seizes him by the throat. And that's where this one uh, ends on a cliffhanger. So uh, we got enough of the story to kind of set the table of, uh, of, you know, what might possibly go on a little bit on who the characters are. And we actually see, uh, you know, the mummy emerge and, uh, I, I think it's a nice little setup to uh, to the beginning of this story. What did you think of it? I I think you're right. It is it is a good setup. Uh, I am glad that the mummy comes to life at the in the last page, just so it doesn't feel like it's all set up. You at least have something going on, uh, right? You know, it's it, Egyptology is very interesting, especially this is supposed to be back in the 1920s. So you're you're talking about you know uh, Howard Carter, Lord Carnarvon finding King Tut's tomb and everything. It's the, right. the height of the English Egyptology craze. So working that in, it's uh, it's it's nice. I've never I've never read the original novel, so I I didn't even know this existed. But it's I I would like to see where the story goes, which is the the perfect way to end a first issue, really. Uh, there are plenty of plenty of mysteries going on here. Yeah. Is this you know is this the real Ramses the Great or is it somebody else? Why do, are the tombs inscriptions like the Rosetta Stone in uh, three languages? Is, you know why does he have a bust of Cleopatra? You know what's what's going on here? <laughs> so yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's, it's intriguing. Uh, the the only downside for me is the artwork it yeah it just it it's it's the best i can say is it's okay in certain places but a lot of it it's 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 like people were sitting for portraits you know yes they're not it's it's, it's not very stiff yeah they're not actually moving and they're not it, it doesn't feel like living breathing people it feels like oh okay well i saw this classical portrait i'll use that for this guy's face 
and just tweak it a little bit. You know, it's, it's and it, it just it for a story that is this interesting, that art is just a huge letdown for me. Although the the mummy, the way they do uh, specifically on right after the archaeologist is murdered, you just have the the image of the mummy with the one glowing eye. That's a good image. Everything around it isn't all that hot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I would like to see where this goes. Um, uh, how far are you into the the series right now? Uh, I think I'm in the fifth issue right now. Okay, so but you're one not of even the things I <laughs> no. One of the things I, I found very kind of weird about the series so far is that while the painter remains the same, Mark Menendez, the layout artist keeps changing. Oh. So that that's kind of a weird, you know, a weird decision to, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, but it's independent comics and back during this time, that was just kind of the way indies were a lot of the times that, you know, they were weird. They were inconsistent. You know, the art was often strange. Sometimes their publishing schedules were weird too. This is a title that as I recall anyway, and maybe I'm being unfair to it, as I recall, I think that's part of the reason why I never got the whole series is that the, the publishing on it was weird too, because it was a small independent. So the, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, regularly scheduled (laughs) yeah exactly uh that's the way i remember it anyway but uh but yeah a lot of the reason i got this um it's probably the worst of reasons but a lot of the reasons i I both read the original book and then i was picking up the comics was to impress a girl you know (laughs) the girl i was i was dating at the time um was really heavily into uh egyptology and uh and it just seemed like you know something to you know, maybe have something in common or, you know, something to talk about or something. I don't know. But uh, I remember just being really impressed with the book. So I, w- I would encourage you to, you know, if you ever get a chance to, you know, find the book on the, on the cheap or whatever, give it a look. Because I remember being uh, so disappointed when the, the most recent, uh, at least the most recent I've seen, um, Mummy movie came out. Because when they announced the one with... Um, Tom Cruise initially I thought it was going to be an adaptation of this book and I got really excited about it and then when it came out it of course has nothing to do with it but uh but one of these days I'm hoping that maybe they will adapt this because for a time there in Hollywood you know right after like interview with the vampire and everything uh Anne Rice seemed to be the uh, hot property and then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you never hear of her anymore but I always had hope that they would adapt this uh, into a movie because mm. like I say, I, I remember it only in broad strokes and, and, you know, specific scenes, but I, I remember really liking it, it has a, a very good, um, you know, just tragic love story element to it. Cause there's, there's some scenes with Cleopatra that were just heartbreaking. So, you know, wow. that, that's the stuff that really always stood out to me um, the most about this, but I don't want to spoil it for anybody that may not have read it and, and be intrigued enough to want to go check it out. But um, I, I can I can kind of see where this might be going as far as Cleopatra is concerned, just because 
I know a lot about mummy movies and things like that. Right. So I I have a guess <laughs> as to where Cleopatra comes into this story. But I will not mention said guess again, not to spoil for anyone who's listening. Right. <laughs> it just it just for me anyway, having you know seen the universal stuff, it's it's kind of oh yeah, this is the route they're going, of course. But it's going to be interesting. You know, if you know, to to see where this goes, because I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can, you know, find some some way to read it. Uh, <laughs> just just because, like I said, I'm I'm interested in in the mysteries. You know, there's a lot of intrigue going on, like you said, between the uh, the archaeologist's daughter and the guy she apparently loves. Although the scene at the ball kind of makes you wonder about that, <laughs> right? But she, they're the ones that are supposed to get married, but the father won't agree because the father of the boy just wants the money and all this mess. So it's uh, it's Victorian politics. Imagine that. Well, it has a lot working for it, you know, in that as you know, for me personally, I always like, you know, period piece stuff and setting it in this period, you know, and then. Late Victorian, you know, the Gilded Age and all that. I, I really like that aspect of it. It plays well, you know, within that time frame. And just, you know, when it's done well, uh, a mummy mythology story like this, I, I really like that sort of thing. So, uh, and this is one of the better ones. I mean, this one ranks right up there with like the Living Mummy from Marvel, uh, mm. from, you know, as far as mummy stories go. Um, the mummy is just always one of my favorite, you know, of the, of the classic monsters anyway, you know, when they're done properly, I don't like the, you know, the goofy, you know, the stereotypical one where they're all wrapped in bandages with their, you know, arms stiff out and (laughs) those are just ridiculous to me. But when it's done well, you know, the, the thought of, you know, the, the immortal man, you know, entombed, you know, for thousands of years coming back to seek his revenge type of thing. I, I like that. There's something classic about that that just is a lot of fun, you know, in a, in a horror sense. And this one, uh, you know, again, as I remember, it has a, a, it has a wonderful mixture between the horror and, you know, the, the tragedy, which, you know, I think the best monster stories have that anyway. So, yeah, it's it's a good yeah. one. All right, someone get Joe Johnston on the phone. We need to make this a movie. <laughs> there you go. If anyone can do a period piece, it's that man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all I really got on this. Are we ready for grades, you think? I think we might be, yeah. All right, so I love the cover on this. The cover, um, I'm trying to tell if it's a painted cover or if that's... Just regular art. It's tough to tell, but it's got a painted quality to it mm. that I think is fantastic. It's just, uh, you know, a, a classic like mummy image, you know, very uh, Egyptian looking. It's just it's hard to, to describe exactly. You just have to see it. But I think it's a great cover. Um, I don't know how much it would really work to sell the book. I, I guess it would. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's giving you the name, the mummy and a mummy image on the front. So I guess that works. Um, I'm going to give it a straight up A. I think, it, you know, art wise, I think it's a, a really beautiful uh, piece of artwork. I wish the interior art was half as good as uh, mm. as, as I think the, the only real weakness of the book is uh, the interior art. 
I, I see what they're going for. I see what they're trying to do. And it just doesn't quite work. It's very stiff. It's very um, posed and lifeless in in a good amount of the book, which is unfortunate. Um, it reminds me an awful lot. Um, not long ago on the show, we reviewed um, Terminator, The Burning Earth. And... I felt a lot of the same way about the art in that. It was also a painted book where I could see where it was going for, but it was just, it, it didn't pull it off and it was just very amateurish looking. And that's what I get from this too, is that it's, you know, it's, it's striving to do bigger things than the artist is, is frankly capable of, um, you know, I'll give them an A for effort, but, uh, you know, as a as an overall grade on the on the finished product here, I'd I'd have to say I'm going to say a C, and I think that's being very generous, quite honestly. Um, it's not horrible; I can follow it, but it's just uh, it's it's lacking in dynamism. Um, and then story wise, um, it's it's hard to grade it story wise because it is an adaptation, but I don't know how faithful in adaptation because I don't remember the story specifically enough I get the strong impression that somebody wanted this issue to end um, for precisely the reasons that you noted Gene that you know that, that we're getting an awful lot of setup and exposition but that final page is the mummy come to life and so I, it feels to me like maybe we rushed to get there because there's a lot of stuff that happens. There's a lot of uh, exposition. And because of that, I feel like maybe some of the characterization um, as far as proper introductions to the characters, proper motivations for the characters and just learning who the hell everybody is, because there's a big cast in this was kind of rushed. So, you know, it, it, and there's um, at least one sequence where I had to reread it several times. It's the scene in the ballroom when they first go mm. to the ballroom in London and the two old gentlemen are talking. They right. look so much like each other that I had trouble following which one was speaking and, and following the dialogue. Essentially, they just weren't distinctive enough looking from each other. <laughs> old British guy with mustache talking to old British guy with mustache. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so that's why the whole money plot thing was just kind of it bored me, frankly, because I got tired of trying to figure out who was talking and what was the what is this all about? I just didn't care. Um, you know, I care about the mummy aspect of this and this whole plot with money. Just it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere, frankly. All I need to know is that the, the nephew's an asshole. I mean, that's that's enough. <laughs> You know, he, he's he's a, a mooch and he's worried that his, his gravy trains come into an end. There you go. That's all the motivation I need. I don't need this whole elaborate thing with the money scheme, whatever that was all about. Um, so story wise, um, I'm going to go on A minus just because I feel like it was rushed a bit in that aspect. But I mean, it's still, you know, the, the story overall um you know, that it's adapting from is, is frankly, I thought was a really good book. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm not being overly harsh on this, but as an overall grade on the, on the book as a whole, um, I'm going to say, 
I'm going to say a tempted to go a B minus, and a lot of that's for the art, but then that sounds like I, I didn't dig it enough. I don't know. I think I'm still going to say a B minus, though, as an overall grade. Um, the downfall is the art, but if you can get past kind of the lackluster art, uh, there's a there's a good story here. And I have read ahead, and I'm trying not to project too much, but you know, having read ahead, I do think the art improves a bit, and the story's definitely. I mean, the story's really good. It's 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 coming back to me the further I read into it, and uh, and it's it's good stuff. So if you get a chance to check it out on the cheap, I highly recommend it. All right. Well. The the problem I have with the cover it is I think the thing that is supposed to sell it sell this book is Anne Rice's name because right. the the art on the the cover is really good but if if you had just had the mummy or Ramsey's the Damned and then that image I would look oh okay fine I'm not gonna buy this. So I, I think I, they were... I'm going to interrupt for just one second, and I haven't yeah. said anything at all to this point. But I, I would just think the cover would also potentially appeal to you if you were a fan of the Universal Mummy. Right. I would say specifically the original Carlock, because that's what yes. this image reminds me of. Yeah. It, remind, you know, it reminds me of uh, the way they, they did his skin when he, he was in the bandages. Right. So, yeah, that that... That could work, but it, it wouldn't be enough to make me pick it up. And uh, you, you also have to factor in how many people, you know, that we're talking about a movie that was made, what, in the 1930s? Yeah. So it's not like, you know, it's cutting edge for your reading audience today. <laughs> right. So, you know, what, what, uh, meanwhile, the, the, you know, the, the universal Dracula or Frankenstein, that might attract an audience in any era. I don't know that the mummy is going to. Right. Sorry to interrupt you. No problem. Uh, so I'm I'm gonna because it's good art. It's just not it. It suffers from poster image syndrome. Uh, yeah. So I'm I'm just gonna give it a C because it's it's a good image. It's just not a good cover image in my opinion. Uh, I'm gonna rate the story next because <laughs> the story, as we said, is a lot of setup. Uh, I can see kind of where things are going. Uh, there's, you know, you need a program to keep track of all the different characters, but <laughs> it, it 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 does what it's supposed to do in a first issue. It makes me want to read issue number two. So that that is definitely something it's got going for it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give the story a B plus. Now for the interior art. <laughs> like we said, you know, it's. I was going to say that they are trying to pull an Alex Ross on Marvels uh, and not succeeding, except Marvels came out four years after this. So <laughs> that doesn't really work. So it, it they're experimenting. OK, I can I can see what they want to do. They want to give it painted art to make it give that more classical feel. Uh, the problem is it gives you the feel of everyone's a statue. And that's not the way I want to be reading comics. And see, I had a similar problem with you, Scott. I didn't have an issue with the the whole thing at the, the ball. I had the issue after the archaeologist is killed and the daughter goes back to talk to her uncle and just trying to figure out, okay, it goes 
this way and then goes backwards and where the heck does this go? Yeah, that that was a little goofy as far as layouts. Uh, yeah. So I'm I'm sorry, I gotta give the interior art a D plus. So that's going to average everything out, I would say, probably a C-plus for me on the book. Now, if I read further on, that might bring the whole thing up, but uh, it's just slightly better than average for me. Fair enough. Okay, sadly, I did not get an opportunity to read this, so I'm not going to... uh to try and come up with a grade on something that I didn't get a chance to uh, to do, and I apologize that I wasn't able to, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. That's why I haven't really said anything throughout this. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's the only, the only thing I could say is just, you know, flipping through it really quickly. I already said what I thought on the cover. Flipping through it really quickly, the art almost looks like, like uh, you know, parody uh, art to me. <laughs> Like it came out of Cracked Magazine? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you know, along those lines. You know, maybe a I little... Can kinda, I can kind of see that, yeah. You know, it, it doesn't look... It, it's like it's an attempt to be painted, but not seriously... I, I almost feel like when you're going to do painting, you need to, in most cases, be kind of photorealistic. And it's painted, but it's not photorealistic. And it just doesn't look quite mm-hmm. good to me. Does it remind you of uh, the Burning Earth that we covered? Yeah, I, I heard you mention that earlier. Uh, to some extent, you know, I mean, when we did the Burning Earth, that was, you know, the early Alex Ross stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, we said even then that he, he had a stiffness to his art that he would, uh, you know, he, he, he hadn't kind of learned to get past at that point. And I see that same stiffness here, which is part of the problem with it. It doesn't look quite right. Something about it doesn't look like it's you know, photorealistic. It almost looks like, you know, let me, let me just draw it. it, it they look like cartoon images that are painted and it just doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're going to have a more cartoony style, then have a cartoony style. And if you're going to have a realistic style, have a realistic style, but don't try and combine the two. Make up your mind. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really work, and that's that's kind of what I think as I'm re- as as I'm paging through this. And and I think you're you're way off because the one guy is stodgy Englishman with a mustache, and the other guy is stodgy Englishman with a mustache with slightly graying temples. Oh yeah, <laughs> big distinction there. And and one has a mustache that kind of turns up, and one has a mustache that kind of turns down. They're very, very distinct. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, you know, that's the problem, too. It, you know, and as somebody who does not have tremendous artistic talent but once thought he did, even though I don't, <laughs> uh, you do find that, you know, it takes a certain level of talent to draw, to not only draw human anatomy and human faces and, and human expressions, but then to take that and draw different faces with that mm. and, and still be able to, you know, have them look different and have them give different expressions and different th- things. So, you know, a more limited artist, and I don't really know this artist, so he, this, this may not be a true example of his work, but at least based on this one book, a more limited artist is going to have trouble drawing 
in a way that's going to distinguish between one character and another and still be able to express the things they want to express. You know, there's going to be standard things you're going to go to as far as how you're going to make eyes look if you're trying to make a certain expression and how you're going to make mouth, you know, shape the mouth. You know, what you're going to do as far as the, the uh, you know, the overall look of the face. And if you have more limits that you can't really branch out, then you're going to just kind of find yourself being repetitive and you are going to draw characters in a way where they're not going to necessarily distinguish from each other. So I think that's potentially a problem. And it's, you know, again, uh, it's, that's one of the things that I, 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 you know, in my limited art tried to overcome somewhat and really never was able to. So, you know, I'm not trying to compare myself to somebody who could do this because I can't do this, but I can kind of understand the struggle. So okay. those are my deep thoughts on this book. <laughs> so, Gene, thanks for coming on tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. It was it was a good time. It's always a pleasure to have you, my friend. So enjoy watching Superman the movie this weekend. Yes, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and that's going Jealous. to. <laughs> so I'm going to spoil uh, it for you. At the end, he wins. Yeah, after. He, Frightens the heck out of all the little kids in the theater. <laughs> you may you may want to listen to uh, the uh, episode 100 of Is It Yours on your way out over to see it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you mean again? Yes. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, that 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 drop is a, oh, <laughs> Paul and Scott talking about Superman the movie. I must listen to this right now. Aww. <laughs> well, I just I, I you know I always think of you as Gene, the guy who. Something dropped from Two True Freaks. I have to listen to this right now. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, working from home kind of screws that up because there are certain things I can't listen to with the kid around. That's true. Uh, Not everything is safe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I'm kind of backlogged on, like, J-Guys and Jedi and <laughs> Trans Magnus just because, yeah, it's not exactly family-friendly stuff there. Yeah, well, and it also <laughs> depends on your level of... Uh... You know what you, what you deem family friendly because I have had uh, people tell me that this podcast is not family friendly and I think we strive to be mostly family friendly, oh. but I, I do think we probably you know I, I don't know how the ratings work I, I guess you know what would be PG would be kind of teen and up because I think yeah. prob- that's probably our rating is teen and up we're not you know overly sophisticated but probably for a preteen we might be more edgy than parents necessarily want. Mm. Depends on the issues being covered, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, tonight, tonight, I don't think we did anything that anybody would have an issue with, except uh, a preteen might be bored by it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yet yeah, you start talking about issues of Power Girl. On the other hand, then you're in PG thirteen territory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who did I hear talking about that just recently? Somebody was talking about a power. Oh, it was it was Professor Allen? He was talking just mm-hmm. as a final anecdote. He was talking about a Power Girl, and he was saying that uh, the artist at the time, and I don't know if it was Joe Staten or somebody else, uh, but on when when Power Girl was first introduced, he kind of ha- was having fun that every time he drew her, he drew her yes. just slightly yep. more well endowed. Yep. Until and he, he it just kept becoming a challenge for him to see how far he could push this until uh, he, until the editors finally boy. said, "No, that's enough." Yeah, it was Wally Wood. Wally Wood. Oh, it was yeah. Wally Wood, okay. Yeah. I, I thought that was a great story. <laughs> so, 
So, and on that note, that I, you know, the story I've stolen from Pro- Professor Allen, I will uh, say uh, good night, everybody. You guys didn't say good night. Night. <laughs> good night. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I would just start laughing.